Hello, I'm Bonnie Langford and this is The Sirens of Audio. Please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. And please like, share, subscribe and comment on our YouTube videos. Then you shall be like us. G'day audiophiles, this is the Sirens of Audio, the podcast that explores the universe of Doctor Who and the audio medium. My name's Dwayne. And my name is Philip. G'day Dwayne, g'day audiophiles. G'day Philip. We are still celebrating. We're still celebrating 100 episodes. We have a lot to party about, let's face it, 100 episodes, <laughs> it's a century. <laughs> so, we've, we've recently released our 100th episode with Colin Baker, so this is episode 100B. 100B, and it's not a series of Blake 7. This is an episode we thought we'd throw in because we've talked a lot about how our paths have crossed in the past, Philip, and one of the specific days that I remember was a day that uh, there was an event with Sylvester McCoy in Sydney in about 2007. Does that sound right? I guess it's about right, yes. I should have stopped. I'm not who, sure. But that who, who, right. thinks, who thinks about dates? It was um, whenever he was doing his tour of King Lear, because he was out here, he, well he wasn't King Lear, he was playing the clown, to a famous actor. Ian McKellen. Ian McKellen, thank you. And I think it was before, it would have been before Is it called done, The Clown or is it called The Fool? Uh, good question. One of those two, my Shakespeare's... I, I always thought it was good. The Fool. It might be The Fool. Um, anyhow, it's the, it's the clown role in Shakespeare, which yeah, he always has one. So, yeah, so that he was on tour. Um, King Lear didn't play in Sydney. It was playing in Melbourne. Right. And, but um, Sylvester agreed to fly up to Sydney to do this um, event before flying to New Zealand where the tour was continuing. So Sylvester had his role because of the role in King Lear. He actually is he's dead by the end of the first act. So Sylvester got to tour. And I think, I think there might have been... I'm trying to think there's two plays... But certainly, yeah, within the yeah, within the King Lear, he's finished by the intermission and he can go home. And so it was quite a nice little part for him. And he agreed to fly up to Sydney while the rest of the cast flew to New Zealand. And he did this day event for us and he then joined the rest of the cast over in New Zealand after he came and talked to all of us. So that would have been a very exciting day for you, Phil. It was. In fact, I think, I think by this stage I'd interviewed David Banks, the cyber leader before this. Um, but usually Todd Belby, who we've had on the program, Todd, Todd was the main person who did most interviews. Dallas did a lot of early ones too, but Todd was kind of known as the interviewee of guests. And, you know, Todd is a superb interviewer, so he's always great to listen to and to watch. And you know, I admire him greatly in that, you know, he's done amazing interviews with a lot of Doctor Who cast. But he had gone down to Melbourne to watch King Lear. So he'd actually gone down for the performance, which I hadn't done. It hadn't occurred to me to spend that much money and I didn't know they were going. But because Sylvester agreed to come to Sydney, they had no one in Sydney because Todd was still down in Melbourne. Otherwise, he would have done it. 
And so I got the privilege of being asked to what I do the interview. So someone says, do you want to interview a doctor? The immediate answer you say is yes. <laughs> of course you do. Don't <laughs> you even, do. Not even a second thought. No. So I just jumped at the opportunity and yeah, it's the first of lots of chats I've had with different people and different doctors and different companions. Um, even more so now, of course, we've done, been doing stuff together and um, many more to come. But it was, yeah, it was a, it was a great joy to get to do this uh, for that event. And it was a pretty packed room. Um, I'm trying to think, I think it was at Bankstown off the top of my head, uh, Sports Centre, but I, oh, actually. I, th I think it hotel. was at Glebe, actually. I think Glebe. Right. It was at Glebe. Okay. Glebe RSL, Return of the Servicemen's League. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, yep. right. Where we had all the, the smaller day events. Yeah, I'm not sure whether I'm not sure whether other people in other countries have an RSL, but one one of the the big clubs that Australians have is we celebrate um, those who've served overseas and and between the wars, and nearly every suburb has a club called an RSL or an ARI. Um, if you're Australian, you're going to the ARI, and Glebe, this is Glebe RSL Return Servicemen's League, and we had lots of events there um, over the years. Um, so yeah, so that, yeah, it was a great great time. Little stage, big room, and I do remember it being very packed. To, you know, three, four hundred people turned up on a Sunday morning, and it was, it was about eleven o'clock, I think, on a Sunday morning. Um, it was a yeah, great time. Now, why were you there, Dwayne? Well, I didn't want to miss the opportunity to meet a doctor, so I, I was living in Tasmania at the time, and I flew up. I, I'd organised with someone to bring my camera, and there were two of us filming the event. So I was on one side of the stage and someone was set up on the other side of the stage. And the footage of that remained lost for many years. And it was only recently that we were talking and I thought I must go out and see if I can find that digital video cassette that, because it's still on cassettes in those days. And um, I thought I was rummaging around in my shed and I found it. What I did discover though was that much of the interview, unfortunately, had been recorded over. I must have been going through a I'm sick of Doctor Who phase and record over it. But uh, uh, the last portion of the interview was still there, uh, which I've I've ripped it to my computer, but I haven't actually looked through it yet, Philip. So you have. Oh really? What goodies have we got? To, what goodies have we got to look forward to? Well, there's some actually it's some really good questions and Sylvester's in fine form and we, we, it starts talking with Sophie and Sophie's casting. So I guess I guess what we've missed is the lead up to you know Sylvester's background. He's getting the job, his first season work with Bonnie, but we we take up from when Sophie joined uh, the the crew. So that's where we're starting from. So as part of our hundredth episode celebrations, we're going to share that interview with you right now. It is available, of course, on the podcast feed. And you can watch it too. You can watch Philip in fine form with Sylvester McCoy on our YouTube channel. So here it is. That's why she left, because she felt like she wasn't going down well. She wasn't one of the popular ones. So Sylvia opened the tour of the road with Ace. Yeah. Um, did you have any play part in her casting? Or? Well, yeah, they came to me and asked me if they, if they thought she would be a good companion. And I said yes, because by then we'd, we'd work together on that one story, Survival, I think. No, 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 it's Dragonfire. Dragon 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 yes, uh, we worked on Dragonfire and um, we got on really well and she laughed at all my jokes. That's good. Cool. <laughs> she could stay and she still laughs at them, it's amazing. <laughs> and it wasn't as if she was laughing at them just to get the job, I mean she actually does think I'm funny. <laughs> Strange woman. Anyway, 
getting on incredibly well. And, you know, still great friends. And particularly with the chemistry, now the two characters are really talking to the to change and direction more, much more modern in terms of the companion story became more of a focus. You became more of an enigma as a character. Yeah. Um, was that something that you were keen to see happen and to promote? Yes, I mean, when I first took over Doctor Who, I had no idea how to play it. I had a distant memory of Patrick Troutman as being some of the, you know, kind of a universal hobo or something like that. Slightly clownish, I remember. And, um, uh, and so I, I kind of played it that way. But then as I started to realise what it was about, I changed my mind. And the, but the scripts already had been written for the next series, so it took a long time to change it round. I wanted them in darker, more mysterious, and eventually the script editor and myself chatted and we came up, we, we, we both agreed that we would try and create the mystery again of the Doctor as he had been in these early days. The mystery had gone and we wanted to try and create that. And also, you know, maybe drop in, maybe he might be a dangerous, he's not that, you know, he's not that good, maybe. You don't know quite, mm. just make him more mysterious, more uncertain about it. And that's what we were working to. At the same time, I insisted that the companion wasn't going to be a screamer, you know, like all the others used to be. Oh, Doctor! Ah! And all that. <laughs> and that she, in a sense, would be part of, you know, the process. And, and I also have very selfish reasons for that. So I used to get lots of speeches with long gobbledygook scientific terms, and they were a nightmare to learn. So I used to try and get them so that we could write the script so that I could start them off and then turn to Sophie and say, Ace, what do you think? Um, um, you know, and she's finishing the speech off for me. <laughs> yes, but then, and she was, because she was really good at remembering lines when she started working with me. But by the end of it, she couldn't remember lines either. <laughs> I used to have these pockets. There's two, one here, one there. And if you look at the, very carefully, if you could be bothered, at the shows, you'll see sometimes this pocket bulging. That's early in the day. Because in that pocket are the scenes, you know, written down, the script, the scenes we're shooting that day. And then, it, then slowly, as we did the scenes, this pocket would start to bulge out. <laughs> so you could tell what time of day we did the scene just by looking at the pockets. And of course, you know, I was always And then, um, yes, take me to your leader, oh, great, um, um, Davros. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know and by the end of it, Sophie was always rifling in my pocket looking for the script. What do I say? That's how we got through it. How, how did you find the production schedule? You filmed five months of the year? Yes, it was five months then. Um, they used to do 26 weeks, so, you know, maybe, I suppose, 10 months, I suppose. Anyway, um, we did five months, which is terrific, because I did five months of Doctor Who. It was uh, you know, a, a good job, well paid, and then I could go off and do theatre work. You know, I'm very less a paid theatre work if I wanted to, um, and or any other kind of work. I did, and, and so that mix was great as an actor. Whereas some of the other actors who did Doctor Who had to give up the whole acting career just to do Doctor Who for you know, that time, as as David Tennant at the moment. <coughs> anyway, um, uh, it, it was nice working on it, but there was still not enough time to do all the shows. We were always up against time. Being a time lord with no time seemed ridiculous, but anyway, that's a good one. So what do what you see the high points of those three years you're working full time on the show? The high point? I don't know any. Um, well, I, I think I, I enjoyed the, the last season more. The Doctor had become darker, but also the comedy was still there. You could use, play with both. 
uh, facets of the, of the character. Um, uh, some, some of the stories are well written. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Survival, I just reviewed, I haven't seen it for 20 odd years, and um, I just saw it recently, and I was amazed how good it was. I could, I, but the costumes were terrible, and the cats were appalling. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they were, they were a very big part of the show, so didn't matter that much. No, no, it didn't, but everything, <laughs> but the, uh, I must say, the, the, the black cat, that was very sad, because what they had originally had was a, a real cat, and it, they were told it was trained. Train they couldn't train so I mean they, they got this trained cat and said action and oh, that was the last thing. <laughs> <laughs> so they had this an animatronic which was only meant to be a split second look, you know, kind of so if they did it quick enough you wouldn't notice that it was like someone with his hands stuck up to a cat's bottom. You know, maybe. And and and, and, and well, that's what it looks like. Now I've got even uh, but but, that, but uh, if you forgive that, the story itself is very good, very dark and very interesting. And the writer's gone on to be one of you know England's you know top um, theatre writers. So that's good. Worked with Anthony Ailey was Anthony Ailey, yes. Well, he I mean he was the master, you know. And uh, he always said, I uh, the only role I ever want to play in life now is the master. I mean, he was just as frightening off the screen as he was on it. <laughs> Find the life out of me, I can tell you that. <laughs> but uh, it, was, uh, it was great to work with him. He was a great actor. It caused me some damage, though, because in that particular story, we were um, fighting him. He had a big femur, a bone of some animal or something like that, and he was supposed to be hitting me with it. But he wasn't actually supposed to be hitting me with it. I was supposed to be trying to protect myself. But, um, and he was supposed to kind of make sure that it went into my, you know, like this. Being carried away, and I was given contact lenses which uh, originally I was not supposed to wear. And so, they, but somehow they said, No, no, we've changed our mind. And so they gave me someone else's contact lenses. And there was, uh, I couldn't see, they didn't fit. I was in pain. There was sand in them because we were filming in a sandy place. And uh, the, it was a heat wave, it was over 100 degrees, and um, it was surrounded by flames of fire. It was agony, and uh, Anthony Ailey was hitting me with a big bone. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't fun. <laughs> um, at the end of uh, that season, of course, the show just wasn't made again, and they never officially cancelled it. Um, how did you, when did you start realising you weren't getting the phone call to come back to the next one? Oh, well, I didn't, I, I didn't realise until I got a phone call from John Nathan Turner. He phoned me up and said, no, oh, um, yeah, kept, um, I'm just sending you a letter. Um, I just thought I thought you had to tell you I was sending a letter. <laughs> that's kind of it. Um, I may as well tell you what's in it. Oh, well, that's all right. I don't know why he sent me the letter. Anyway, uh, it was one of those official things he had to do. Uh, just to say that they were putting it into um, hiatus. I hate that word. It's a horrible word. Isn't it? And anyway, they were putting it into hiatus for that man. And um, uh, that's what they did. And it stayed in hiatus for a long time. Yeah, well done. 1996 though, you got a call to come back? Yes. How did that come about? For the uh, television movie? Well, I mean, they just phoned up. My agent said, you know, would I be interested to, to be in it? And I, because they wanted to do the uh, regeneration scene. And they didn't want to have to do the same as they did with Colin and I. In fact, I'm the only doctor that's played two doctors. I'm the only actor that's played two doctors. The trivial pursuit question. Because I played Doctor Number Six, and my mother put me in um, Colin's costume, 
They lost me for three days. Very <laughs> <laughs> Sylvester, my hand <laughs> Then they put the wig on me. The curly wig, the blonde wig. It wasn't, I mean, Colin had real hair then. But, um, they still got real hair, but it's less of it. But anyway, um, they put me in, in, in his wig and I looked like Harpo Marx. So that's why they had me face down to it. But, um, they asked me if I'd do the regeneration. I said yes, because I'd always sworn I would, you know, for the fans, because they obviously were disappointed that Colin hadn't done the regeneration. So I did. And at first I thought I might be just under the opening titles. And then they sent me a script, and I was in the first 20 odd minutes of the film, which was great. So I definitely agreed to do it. So once they signed the contract, sent me another script, and it ended up only being 10 minutes. <laughs> but they got me by then, so I couldn't go away. So uh, anyway, I did it. I had a great time doing it. Well, where was that filmed? It was filmed in Vancouver. And, um, it was great to do it and not have any responsibility. And uh, they treated me like a king. And uh, they were, you know, the producer was very kind to me. He had a great respect for Doctor Who. But I think it, uh, it was too complicated for the American audience to start off a new Doctor Who with two Doctors. They should have not had me in it. They should have done it as a story. Hook the audience and then explain how the Doctor became, you know, because I'm back in time and had me come back and recreate that to regeneration. So you did that role in 96. Uh, and then in 99 you get approached again about playing the Doctor again with a big finish. Yes. Well, I had actually been making with a guy called um, Bill Baggs, yeah, there's a guy called Bill Baggs, and he, he, he'd been doing kind of pirating versions of Doctor Who, calling him the professor, and you know, and uh, with Sophie and I, and audio, and also he'd made some, you know, films, you know, of uh, video films of Doctor Who, he typed stories, so he kind of kept it alive, and then uh, Russell and uh, Jason kind of started up their own company, and started making them. And then they became very successful. And all, as you know, the, the viewers who listen to them, you know, all the old so-called classic doctors who are still alive, apart from Tom Baker, makes them. How do you have, how do they work to the weekend recording? Yes, two days. So how far, I mean, you're now on two or six months. Have you got some in the bag that you'll be releasing? Or? Well, the, yeah, there was one. I mean, I did one hurriedly. I mean, I, um, and I was supposed to do another one before I left. Um, they asked me, they said, what would you like to do, you know, an audio Doctor Who story? And I said, a silent movie. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to do a silent movie. Somehow, I mean, they were really excited by that. They got, so, someone's going to write a silent movie. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Then I had called them scene one, so I guess you mean silent, it's possible. Silent movie, we're going to do that. It'd be interesting to see how it turns out. Do you find the it the two hours of nothing? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think on last count, you've done about 26 of the audio stories. Which wow. Is twice of what you did in terms of Doctor Who stories. Yeah. Um, because you just go in for a weekend, have the script there, you tend to this pass in a blur? Yes, they do in a way. Although I do enjoy doing them immensely. And I like, I like the audio uh, a lot because. I, I, I feel that with that you can get really inside the doctor's head. 
Whereas on the television or the film, it's, it's, it's a visual thing. In somehow in the audio, you can really get really into his thoughts. And I, I, the, the, the silent movie is going to be much more of that. And it's not going to be silent at all. It's going to hopefully work really well. But um, it's, it'll be all about the, the doctor's thoughts. And you must be great to catch up with Sophie and Bonnie and Will. Oh yes, no, regularly seeing Sophie is terrific and Bonnie and um, you know the, the various other people that over the years that have been involved in Big Finish and in, uh, in the United Kingdom fandom. It's really nice to, 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 to work with them. Do you know what to expect? You just turn up the day and get the script and see who's there? Sometimes, you know, they send me the script and you know, they might sometimes have a cast. So, and we're getting great casts in it, you know, top class actors. Uh, so, uh, Derek Jacobi's been in one, not with me, but another one, and um, various other, you know, lardy actors um, have been in it with me. Uh, the, 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 one, the one recently I did was this beautiful uh, actress who was uh, James Bond's companion, um, Timmy Dalton, Timothy Dalton's James Bond had a French girl companion, Dubois, du, uh, Miriam Darbo. Miriam Darbo. And she, she was in it. And then in a sense, she, I don't, I don't know if they were thinking of her being my new companion, <laughs> but I hope so, because she's, <laughs> <laughs> she's lovely too. She's a lovely woman. She's really great, you know, bright as a button. Great. Just, uh, we'll finish up soon and then come back later to, to answer questions. In terms of the new series, have you been able to see much? No, very little. I saw the opening, uh, you know, uh, Christopher Eccleston, uh, a few of his, which I enjoyed immensely. Um, I thought he was absolutely terrific. He's got great, except for maybe the comedy. His light-hearted side tended to be a bit as if it was an alien sometimes. And I think it's his nature. It's the actor's nature. He's not, you know, he's not known for his sense of humour. Um, but he's a. <laughs> this doesn't take any. He's a great actor. He's absolutely stunning and wonderful actor. But uh, every time he used to smile, it always didn't seem quite fit. That was my only criticism of him. Apart from that, I thought he was terrific. I thought she was stunning. And she actually took on the role of uh, Sophie in a way. But very similar in, 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 in Street Kids, you know. Uh, very similar in kind of storyline. And I suppose the writers and the producers of the new Doctor Who had grown up on my Doctor as well. And, you know, there's a lot of influences that I can see in their storylines that came from ours. Well, in the past season, they even took one of the new adventure novels for the Seventh Doctor story yeah. and made it for the Tenth Doctor. Really, did they? Yeah. Well, and also, they, um, you know, there was one, a Second World War one. And in that, they did, we did the Second World War one. And in that Second World War one, uh, Sophie had to pick up a baby. That baby, <laughs> I can't remember it now, was a mother or was a granny or something like that. And then uh, in, in the, the one that they did, um, Billy Piper had to pick up a baby, and that was her mother, or was herself? It was, so so it was all the you know, some like echoes of things that um, we did are in the new one. We met David Tennant. I worked with David. He did a big finish with me. We did one of those. Called it Coldits, wasn't it? The... Was it Coldits? Yes. And, uh, I mean, he's a lovely, lovely bloke. He's a, uh, I mean, he's a terrific actor as well. So I think Doctor Who's in very good hands. Do you think there's a place for the Seventh Doctor to uh, make an appearance? Oh, yes. <laughs> but, but sadly, I had heard that uh, Russell T. Davis had 
that he wasn't going to have, you know, the 5, 10, 25 dumplings or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> he also said he wasn't going to have fun with that. Yeah. And he wasn't going to come with no Oh, you mean he's a liar. Hooray! <laughs> But anyway, um, he didn't say so he, he, I didn't know he didn't want the master, but, he, but anyway, he did. He got Derek Jacobi. Um, so, that's interesting. But anyway, he said he didn't want all those egos, ego, egos in one room. You know, how, to, how to handle them. What's egos? I know who. Tom Baker, no ego there. <laughs> This license gives us all the chance to honor my grandfather's lost Antarctic expedition. It will not only enable us to discover what fate befell him and his faithful team back in 1929, it affords us the opportunity to pay our last respects and lay their remains to rest. Aristobulus and Dickside, do you read? Over. Dickside, Prof, come in for God's sake. Let's take in the ice back about another ten feet. Still can't see anything. Nothing. Reading still there. Reads over two meters tall, Luke's cuboid. Yes, I'm an archaeologist, not a fool. You promised me unusual artifacts and remains, not an impossibly preserved body buried in a layer of ice frozen millions of years ago. Oh my god, it's reptilian. This is what you were expecting, weren't you, Gossett? Reptilian, indigenous to Earth. Who the hell are you? So there you have it, Philip, your time with Sylvester McCoy. What a fantastic um, trip down memory lane. I've really enjoyed that now that I've seen it. Yeah, actually, it wasn't the f- that was the first time I interviewed him. I actually got to interview him again at another event right. uh, but a year or two later. So that, yeah, that, that was just one of the times I've had the privilege of interviewing Sylvester. Okay, excellent. And hopefully not, and hopefully not the last. Absolutely. So I hope you've enjoyed that little trip down memory lane. We've enjoyed bringing that to you for our 100th episode celebrations. Um, But before we go, I reckon we should do recommendation. What do you reckon? Yeah, okay. Well, whose turn is it? Just something something that you've been listening to. And just for a change, I think it should be your turn, Philip. Oh, okay then. So I've been listening to a, a Star Trek podcast called The Delta Flyers. Um, it's just for the, the Voyager stories, and so it's um, just two of the original cast. So it's Robert Duncan McNeil and Garrett Wang, um, who played Harry Kim, um, and Robert Duncan McNeil was the pilot, and I've just flown, lost his name as well, um, Tom Paris. So it's the two of them just reflecting, and it's, it's quite amusing. Um, Robert Duncan McNeil remembers nothing, really, about the shows at all. Um, and it, it is set up very much for you to subscribe, which I haven't done. I'm only using the, the free version, which bases a, a short introduction, and then they talk about memories from the show. But a lot of the stories are very interesting. And what we don't see is they actually do a commentary. So what they do is 
um, for those who subscribe and pay for it, they watch the episode. It's obviously doing that that Robert Duncan Neal starts to remember so much about the show. <laughs> um, and one of the things I think is refreshing about it is they do recognize there's a lot of really bad episodes there. And they do recognize some, there's some really bad political statements being made and some bad sexism. And, and so they do commentate on that along the way. And they, they're prepared to say, yeah, it was a pretty bad episode. And look how stupid our hair looks in that. And um, so it's a very honest approach to the stories. But there's also lots of really excellent technical advice in there. And they talk about their lessons that, you know, the, the, you know, the fifth episode, a, a new director came on board and taught them how it all had a shake. Because, you know, they were all shaking the wrong way for the cameras and, you know, to actually look like they were being hit by whatever they were being hit with. And this director all gave them shaking lessons. And so there's some lovely, funny stories along the way. The two of them obviously get on really well together. Um, you know, one of my old podcasts, which I really used to love, was the West Wing podcast. Um, and so it's, it's, it's similar in vain in that, except not all the episodes are good. Um, and there's a bit less um, nitty gritty. They've had a couple of cast members on, but if you like Star Trek and you like Voyager, um, there's some really good episodes there worth listening to. So that's my recommendation. What about you, Dwayne? What are you going to recommend? Well, since I've been digging through the archive, i.e. my shed, I found another tape, which I thought was really interesting. And this Marco is Marco for... Polo. You found the original Marco Polo. Well, I'm not, I did, but I'm not giving that one up. I'm going to talk about something else. Marco Polo is all mine. Um, I found an old interview that I did because uh, I uh, had my radio show for about 10 years and scored a, a few really, well, lots of really good interviews, actually. But one of my favorites was an in-person interview with Porcupine Tree frontman Stephen Wilson. When they were playing in Melbourne, I was over there and able to score a face-to-face -face interview. But because it was... For radio, I only ever use the audio. I've put the audio up on YouTube uh, in the past in segments, but I actually found the video uh, while I was searching for your interview with Sylvester and uh, was able to put that up online as well. So I think that's uh, a really interesting interview for anyone who likes progressive rock music. Uh, they'll know who Stephen Wilson is. It was one of my most thrilling interviews, so I was very nervous to start with, but he's just one of these guys who puts you very much at ease, and he's a great talker, so you don't have to do too much talking to, to prize it out of him. Got to love those interviewees, Philip, when they do you that. Do. Um, so, yeah, it was only about 20 minutes, but I'll put a link in the show notes for that. I've put that up on my YouTube channel now, and... Um, it's topical because Porcupine Tree put that album out. That was the last time they toured, uh, they, and then they they sort of they didn't they never officially split. But Stephen Wilson was working on his solo career since then, and Porcupine Tree are just about to release a new album in a couple of months' time after about twelve years. So uh, it is slightly topical as well. So uh, yeah, one I I don't think I got much of the the concert that night. I was still on a a buzzing on a high you know that high buzzing after you speak to someone you really admire sort of there for a while i didn't hear much music after that i can tell you i know so, exactly what you're talking about yeah that was that was quite a thrill so uh so check that out if you like so uh next time on the sirens of audio we are getting back together with our old friend kenny smith he's going to be joining us and we're going to be talking about the latest fourth doctor adventures release called solo two stories from that have uh, been recently released and uh, we're going to have a great chat with Kenny, I'm sure. I'm sure we will. Make sure you, you get a chance to try and listen to those episodes before we talk about them. Absolutely. They're, and, and they're worth listening to, but we're going to have a good chat about them. 
because there are we are dropping a spoiler or two here and there, so it would be good if you hear the episodes first. But if you don't many... mind, if you don't mind a mild spoiler, uh, tune in and it will give you an idea of what we think of those stories because uh, we were very impressed. Let me tell you that. All right, that's it for this in bonus instalment of the Signs of Audio. We really appreciate your company. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for thanks for what you did all those years ago, Philip. Well, glad it's still coming useful. <laughs> all right, catch you next time. This has been a bonus episode of The Sirens of Audio, an afternoon with Sylvester McCoy, with the man himself and your hosts, Philip Edney and Dwayne Bunny. Theme music by the Jackpot Golden Boys. Contact details, links to our podcast and video locations, social media and more can be found at sirensofaudio.com. Send us some audio feedback via anchor.fm slash sirensofaudio. Drop us a line at sirensofaudio at gmail.com to give us your thoughts about a podcast that we've done or the latest audio drama you've been listening to, and we'll share it on a future episode. And why should you do this? Because audio drama... Yeah!